Hi, welcome back to the NGB Ideas Podcast. I'm Jim Wilson. This podcast is about the journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences sector, and it's brought to you by LabOccupier.com. There are life sciences organizations across Canada, and more than a few hit far above their weight class. The influence of these groups is due in no small part to their membership, but also because of their leadership, and Life Sciences Ontario is on that list. LSO is a member-funded, not-for-profit organization focused on advancing life sciences through advocacy, policy work, educational and networking events, and support services. And our guest today is the President and CEO of Life Sciences Ontario, Jason Field. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Great to have you. Regular listeners to the NGBI's podcast know that we start at the beginning. I'd like to talk about your early years. This may come as a surprise to many listeners who may know you. It certainly raised my eyebrow a bit. You were born in the Barbados. Were both of your parents from there? My family is from Barbados. That's where I was born. My mom is Bajan and her side of the family. My dad's Trinidadian, actually. Definitely a long family history within the islands and, and the Caribbean. What did your parents do for a living? Both my parents were self-employed, actually. My dad worked in construction, then he went into retail hardware, and then my mom was a hairdresser. They supported both myself and my two older sisters through their own businesses and their own hard work. You have two older sisters? You're the youngest? I am the youngest of three. I have two older sisters. We're all about two years apart. Did everyone get along growing up? <laughs> oh, yes, of course, Jim. We all got along, as all siblings do. So my middle sister and I were probably closer when we were younger. I, we were at school at the same time. We had some overlap of friends and people that we knew in, in the community. My older sister and I, being four years separated, were definitely further apart. And to be honest, my older sister and I are probably more alike, so two type A personalities, that used to conflict quite often. So as kids, we were pretty argumentative with one another. As we grew up, though, I think we both grudgingly have acknowledged our similarities and have embraced that more. And we're a lot closer now than we were when, when we were younger. I'm the youngest in my family, and I've grown up being accused by my older siblings that I got everything that they asked for, which, of course, I disagree with. Would your sister say the same thing? Oh, 100% they would say that. And, you know, it wasn't until I became a parent of three that I really discovered the difference between the older, the middle child, and the youngest. And I have to grudgingly admit there are some advantages to being the youngest. I will back you up on that. Your parents moved from Barbados to Canada when you were five years old. What was it that brought them here? I mean, I was five, so I wasn't really privy to the decision at the time. In my conversations with them, they were really looking for a change. You know, oftentimes what would happen in the islands is because the islands are small communities and there wouldn't be as many opportunities for education and career development as you would have other places. So a lot of times families that grow up in the islands end up sending their kids away for school and education. They may go to a different island for a university that specializes in a particular area. Oftentimes, kids would go overseas to Canada, the U.S., or the U.K. We had a strong and close-knit family, and they didn't want that separation as we were growing up in our formative years to be apart. And I think that was a big motivator for them coming to Canada. 
must have been a tough decision for them, uprooting where they grew up, where they had built their home. Definitely a different culture, more than just the snow, but everything really. And so it was challenging for them, but they came, they took that risk and they came to Canada. And I think in large part to provide us the opportunities that we've enjoyed here. What a great example. Where did you grow up in particular? So I grew up uh, about an hour north of Toronto in a little town called Beaton, Ontario. It's where the big Honda plant is now. Although when I was going to high school, Honda hadn't arrived yet and totally transformed that town. But I went to Sir Frederick Banting High School. That had a quite a profound effect on me from a science perspective, right? Growing up you know, in the shadow of Banting, knowing that he came from that community, that he brought such great science to the world and saved so many lives. Just having that in the environment of the community was a bit of an influence over me. Was growing up for you and your sisters kind of a stereotypical Canadian upbringing? I would say for the most part. I mean, obviously, we have a strong island heritage. It was always fun having friends over who, for the first time, were trying some spicy Caribbean food and sometimes enjoyed it, other times did not. Just the culture that we brought with us from the islands, I think we've always maintained that. We always have that in our family and in our traditions, but we definitely had a fairly stereotypical Canadian upbringing. I, I grew up playing hockey and tobogganing and, and skiing and skating and all those things that you typically would do as a Canadian. That's cool. You had an eighth grade science teacher, Frank McKenna, who had a significant impact on you, I understand. What do you recall about him and what was it about him that made that impression? I'm going to have to correct you. His name actually was Greg McKenna, but he did have a big impact on me. So again, Beaton was very much a farming community. Mr. McKenna kind of brought that knowledge and experience of having grown up on a farm and owned a farm into the classroom. And there's so much science in agriculture. And so bringing that practical perspective of that interface between nature and technology. And he was an interesting man and he was passionate about teaching. He was passionate about science. He always encouraged me. I think he saw I had a bit of a natural aptitude towards science, and he encouraged that. Made me feel like I could pursue science and that I could achieve success in, in whatever I did. And just having teachers that instill that confidence and that sense in a young person, especially at formative years, when you have doubts about your future and, and the direction that you're taking and having to make these sorts of decisions, having role models like Greg McKenna was really special. So I do owe him a lot for influencing me along the science journey that I have taken in my career. Did you go to high school in Alliston? What was that like? Yes. Yeah, so I did go to high school in Alliston at Sir Frederick Banting Memorial. And as I said, kind of growing up in that community that Sir Frederick Banting lived and brought so much fantastic science to the world really showed that somebody from this little town could have big and profound impacts in the world of science. The art of the possible was always there. I mean, I walked by his portrait every morning as I came through the front doors of that high school. And so it was always a reminder of great Canadian science from our community. It was a great experience. And again, another one of those things that I think influenced my direction. My high school years are now a part of my life that I fondly remember. And one of my teachers, Gord Goodrum, instituted in me a love of history that I carry to this day. But I pivoted in university and ended up having a career in sales. 
One of your favorite high school subjects was math, and you got to the University of Waterloo, but you completed a Bachelor of Sciences degree in chemistry. Why did you pivot? I absolutely loved math, and I had an aptitude towards math. It was my favorite subject, you know, in grade school and through high school. I actually won the calculus award, believe it or not, in my home school. I remind my kids of that, <laughs> you know, try and encourage them to achieve success in math. At the time, I think the challenge for me, Jim, was I didn't have a lot of people in my life that had university education. I mean, both my parents were self-employed. Neither of them had gone to university. My sisters both went to colleges for specific career options and achieved that, but didn't go to university as sort of general science degrees or mathematics. And so as I was graduating high school and I was thinking about math, I thought, yes, I love math, but what am I going to do with a math degree? Because I just didn't know what those opportunities were. Math and science were sort of my two favorite subjects. I was horrible at social sciences and, and languages. Sometimes people think that, you know, math and science are the hard subjects. For me, it was the opposite. You know, languages were really difficult for me. Social sciences were really difficult for me. I liked the certainty of math and science and the rigor of it, and I was very comfortable with those things. For me, it was really, I didn't know what I would do with a math degree from a practical standpoint. So it's a bit of an influence, I think, of my parents being self-employed and making their own careers. And when I thought about science and chemistry in particular, I could look around my world. You know, I could read the label on a candy bar or cleaning product or you name it. And there's chemistry all around us. So for me, it was, well, if I do a chemistry degree, there has to be a job somewhere because chemistry is all around us. So that was really the thinking back in high school that it would lead to a practical job. You have said that chemistry is the subject you hated the least. That's an interesting comment. It was. I did like physics as well. I wasn't too keen on biology just because I was a little squeamish and <laughs> dissecting. The chemistry I really liked. And it was that great combination, I think, of mathematics and science together. And, you know, you mentioned history. And even though I wasn't particularly fond of sort of world history, I was really interested in the history of science. And I had a teacher in high school that taught through the history of science, the types of experiments and the thinking that went into our accumulated knowledge within chemistry. And I found that really fascinating and interesting to see through the eyes of these scientists that came before us and the genius of the experiments they carried out and the impact of the discoveries they made in terms of our understanding. It was enjoyable for me, for sure. You're really a closet social science advocate. I definitely understand the attraction of it. There's something about looking back through the past and understanding where we are today and the wealth of our knowledge, but also, you know, ensuring that sometimes history doesn't repeat itself and that we do things differently. You know, we're doing a lot of work around diversity and inclusion and certainly lessons from the past can't be forgotten when we're talking about things like that. You mentioned earlier that you were the first person in your family to go to university, and being the first to blaze a path takes courage. Was achieving that goal more important to you, or was it your parents that pushed you, or, or was it a kind of a common goal? Definitely wasn't my parents pushing me. My parents were, I think, as long as we were pursuing an education with a purpose, they were fine. 
I mean, the first thing my parents asked me when I said I was going to university for chemistry is, well, what's your job going to be? And so that's where I had to talk to them about the plethora of options that a chemistry degree could open up to me. And the fact that I was also doing a co-op program at Waterloo, they really liked that idea too, that I'd be working and studying at the same time and getting that hands-on experience was definitely something that I wanted to do. You know, as I was going through high school and I met people that had role models from university and friends that had parents with university education that I got to know and meet, that had an influence on me because that social circle that I was in, majority of my friends were pursuing university education. That was something that I wanted to do as well. What was it about Waterloo that attracted you? Was it the co-op program or was it geographic desirability? What, what was it? It was definitely a combination of two things. I would say the co-op program was one of them. My parents set the expectation that they would help us out however they could, but we needed to pay our own way. The extra dollars of working the as well as the experience was something that certainly factored into my decision. I think the biggest thing though, Jim, was when I visited the campus. When I was in final year of high school, we went and we visited a few universities and it was during the summertime. And because of the co-op program, the Waterloo campus was actually quite active because the way the terms are staggered, sometimes you're in class during the summer. Whereas some of the other universities that didn't have co-op programs at the time, they were very quiet and you couldn't get a feel for what that environment was like with students there, that pulse of the university, that buzz, that energy. Waterloo had it. Even in the middle of summer when we were visiting, and I remember walking across the campus and seeing students and feeling that energy and saying, yeah, I want to be a part of this. And so I don't know if Waterloo did that on purpose as a sales tactic, but it certainly worked on me. It is a great institution. Did you enjoy your time at university? Like, was it something that you enjoyed or was it something you endured? Definitely both. Waterloo was incredibly difficult. As I mentioned in high school, my grades were quite high. I was quite accomplished academically. And then going into Waterloo, it was very, very different. We had to work hard, but we played hard as well. It was a combination of things. It was tough. No stretch of the imagination. It was difficult, difficult time in terms of studying and working hard. But again, I think back on it and there were some of the best years of my life. I made friendships that have continued to last throughout my lifetime, very close friendships. I met my wife there. It was transformative. So when I think back on it, I had some of the best times, but it wasn't easy. It was hard. You had extreme lows and extreme highs, but it was definitely a very interesting time of my life and a formative time of my life. You and I have spoken briefly a few times and You've always struck me as someone who has a very even keel. You're very measured. And I'm wondering where you get that from. Oh, boy. I think the people that know me well, Jim, might, might argue with you on that one. It's funny that you say that. I make a lot of effort to try to be that way in a professional sense. And even with things like parenting, for example, although my kids might uh, tell you otherwise, because... I think in those roles like parenting, like leadership of an organization or many professional roles, there's a certain level of responsibility that you have, not just for yourself, but for others. For me, it's the importance of bringing strength to others, confidence for others, 
it's to give them an environment where they can succeed and be happy. You know, I want the people that work with me, work around me to be enjoying what they do. I mean, we spend so much of our time at work that it really is very much like a family. I think me trying to be even keeled is my way of taking responsibility for my role as a leader, whether it's in an organization like LSO or as a father, giving that opportunity in difficult situations for my kids or for my employees or for my colleagues to feel comfortable in taking a breath and getting some perspective on a situation and working through it. To me, if you're panicking about something, you're not thinking. So I like to encourage those around me to take a, a measured approach. But oftentimes, honestly, Jim, I'm as anxious as anyone, if not more. I've got a lot of anxiety, believe it or not. I think I just hide it well. You're a corporate duck. You're looking calm, but you're scrambling like heck underneath the Absolutely. <laughs> Going back to your university life, did you play any sports or belong to any clubs? Growing up in grade school, I was into hockey until I was probably about 12 or 13. So I played all through my childhood hockey and really enjoyed it. Then when I was about 13 years old, I started martial arts and did that right through high school, a little bit into university, but University was, honestly, it was just so overwhelming. I used to, like on our co-op programs, when I had a little bit more time to think, I would usually join a, a local club or something, depending on where I was located at co-op, and try something new. That's what I did around that time. I started picking hockey back up in grad school a little bit, just playing some pickup games and things like that. And now with, with the kids, they're into snowboarding. So I learned how to snowboard in my 40s, which for anyone that has tried that, you don't bounce quite as well as you did when you were younger. It can be a bit of a painful experience. Maybe you don't recover as well as you did when you were younger, but you might bounce better. You mentioned you met your wife, Laura, at university. How did you meet? Laura was in the chemistry program as well, and we were off stream because of co-op. So we didn't actually meet until our second year of university at a party, actually, that I was hosting. And she actually showed up with one of my good friends, believe it or not. That was where we first met. You know, we started talking and then over the next few days, sitting together in class and chatting and it just naturally evolved from there. In university, it was tough. So we kind of endured the challenges of, of our classes and our academic pursuits together but we also had those great times with each other and, and our friends celebrating our successes growing up in those formative years together. And at the end of, of undergrad, it really was a, a decision that we had to make in terms of whether or not we were going to stay together. And I knew that I definitely wanted to stay together. Right after graduation, I proposed and we started looking for graduate schools together. And yeah, the rest is history. The two of you ended up going to the University of Massachusetts Amherst to pursue, I'm assuming you both were pursuing PhDs in chemistry. Could you tell us about that move down to the States? Like, was it an obvious choice or was it a whole bunch of factors? It was a whole bunch of factors. I definitely would say it wasn't an obvious choice. We decided we wanted to stay together. So we were applying to universities together. We applied to several Canadian universities and several U.S. universities. And of the ones that we were both accepted to, kind of limited the pool down. And Massachusetts was really interesting because 
at the time, back in the late 90s, the US dollar was a lot stronger against the Canadian dollar. As graduate students, we would be paid in US dollars. Also, they waived the out-of-state tuition. It was a lot less than Canadian tuition and a lot more stipend as a teaching assistant than you would get in Canada. For us, it was very much a practical reason that Number one, we both found professors that we wanted to work for and research groups that we were interested in. The second one was really monetary. We thought with both of us, graduate school and the cost of living, we'd be able to put a little bit of money aside so that once we did graduate, that we would be able to pay off our student loans. And we were actually able to do that, pay off our undergraduate loans after grad school. We didn't have two nickels to rub together. <laughs> But we weren't in a huge amount of debt. And honestly, that was a huge advantage after graduating from graduate school is to come out with essentially no debt. Did your move to the U.S. surprise your parents? Yeah, it did. I remember when I told them that I was going to graduate school, they said, what? More school? When are you going to get a real job? It was hard for them to comprehend or understand. I mean, no one in, in our family had gone to university, far less graduate school. But, you know, at the end of it, when they came down to Massachusetts and attended my PhD thesis defense, and they saw the, the research that I had done and the, the process and the rigor of the questioning, etc., and then being bestowed the title of, of doctor, they were incredibly proud. And I think the light went on for them and went, wow, this is special. And, and they were really proud. What was your thesis in? So my thesis was helical electroactive organic materials. Ah, uh, that would have been my second guess. In every podcast I've done, and I'm sure everyone going forward, there's always a point at which I think I haven't the faintest idea what you just said. This is that point in this podcast. What does that mean? Have you heard of OLED televisions. Yes. So you may have heard of OLED. So essentially what OLED is, is organic light emitting diodes. So they use organic materials. So materials that are essentially carbon, hydrogen, oxygen to emit light. And so there's different types of organic materials that can emit light or transport electrons. So they are electrochemically active. I was studying those types of materials, but in addition to those types of materials, the ones I was studying had a helical shape to them, which meant that they could emit circularly polarized light. And oftentimes in televisions or display screens, they would use filters to create circularly polarized light, whereas these materials could inherently emit them. That was the type of chemistry that I was doing. That's very cool. I'm sure there have been a lot of people who have influenced you, but there was one professor, your first chemistry professor, who had a profound impact in particular. What was his name, and could you tell us a bit about him? There's two that I'll mention. The first one in undergraduate was a gentleman named Morris Cheer at Waterloo. He was just an incredible person and just an incredible human being. He just had this way about him where he always had a little bit of a smile in his eyes. And it didn't matter what you were talking to him about. He just had this great sense of humor. I remember in his first exam we took with him, we were taking it up in class. And he said, by the way, if you have a red star on your paper, that's not a good thing. It meant you drew, drew a pentavalent carbon. Don't do that. That's like a mortal sin for an organic chemist. It was just funny the way that he did it, right? Because usually you'd get stars for doing something good and said, no, that's not a good thing. 
that was just his sense of humor. And then the other one was, of course, my PhD advisor. His name is DV. He's from India. His, his full name is Dahanapani Venkataraman, but everybody calls him DV. DV was absolutely the smartest man I know to this day. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of chemistry. Like you talk about anything in chemistry and he can cite papers from years before and but in addition to his passion for science, he's just a wonderful human being that has a level of integrity more so than anyone that I have ever met in terms of his scientific rigor, his honesty, and he just brings that to his group and teaches it to his students. That level of integrity and responsibility, knowing that you have the privilege of studying science. And that's what he taught us, that it was a privilege to study science, and it comes with a responsibility. Wow, how inspiring is that? You and Laura graduated from UMass Amherst, and you came back to Ontario. Why didn't you stay in the U.S.? What brought you back? We had always intended on coming back home to Canada. We both grew up in Canada. It's where we wanted to call home. It's where we wanted to raise a family. And so we always had that intent. But in my last year of graduate school, we had a career day and companies from around the U.S. were coming and interviewing students. I didn't sign up for any of them because I had intended on coming home. And the chair of the department called me up one day and he said, you know, we have GE coming in and we'd like you to interview with them. And I said to him very politely, look, I'm really not interested. I'm intending on going home to Canada, et cetera. And he said, well, you know, think about it this way, Jason. It's going to be a really good opportunity for you to practice interviewing. And if that's all you take from it, then that's a really good learning experience for you. So I, I couldn't argue with that. So I did the interview with, with GE. And honestly, Jim, I think it was because I knew I wasn't interested in the job or the position, probably gave me so much confidence in the interview that they offered me a job. And I declined the job and they were not taking no for an answer. They must have called me a dozen times, offered to fly me out to their headquarters to see their executive training facility, all sorts of stuff. You were playing hard to get. Yeah, they came after me hard. And, you know, it got to the point where I was talking to Laura, like, should I be considered? Like, am I going to regret saying no to this? And I finally decided, no, we're going to come home to Canada. And, and we did. But it was hard to say no, I have to say. It was a great opportunity. And the U.S. companies do pursue talent very aggressively. <laughs> There's a lesson in that for many companies in our sector in, in Canada. You got back to the GTA in end of 2003, and you worked at Alfora Research in Mississauga for three years. What did you do there? Yeah, so actually my first job was at Torcan Pharmaceutical for a year. Oh, okay. So I was on a year-long contract doing scale-up chemistry for pharmaceutical APIs, active pharmaceutical ingredients. So I'd basically take their processes that we would do as organic chemists on the bench, and then I would have to create processes that they could actually do on scale. What I would describe to an organic chemist is doing organic chemistry with one hand tied behind your back. Because a lot of the equipment and techniques that we use in the lab, you can't do at a large commercial scale. So you have to really simplify these processes down. After a year at Torcan, one of the executives that was a leader at Torcan started a new company called Alfora Research. And so after my year contract was complete, I went and joined Alfora, which was really just a startup at the time. I think I was like 
maybe the fifth or sixth employee through the door. It was great to see that company build up from the ground up and, and to be part of that. And it was essentially doing the same thing that I was doing at Torican. And now they're part of Eurofins, and they've just done a significant expansion in Sheridan Research Park in Mississauga. They're a great company. From there, you went to join the Ontario Ministry of Economic Development and Trade. That's a big switch. Why did you move from the private to the public sector? Was there something behind the scenes driving that decision? Yeah. My thesis was actually in organic materials. That was sort of my scientific love and passion, so to speak. It wasn't really in pharmaceuticals or natural products per se. And so after doing that for a few years, I decided that I really wanted to pursue something different. And I was actually thinking of going back into academics. So I was exploring options for postdocs to get back more into the material side of things. And it was during that time that I saw this ad for a position with the Ontario government. And I thought to myself, okay, well, this is probably something I could do to pay the bills while I figure out what I want to do with my life. I had heard all the stereotypes of working for the government, you know, nice cushy government jobs. So I figured it would give me lots of time to figure stuff out and research what I, what I want to do next in terms of my postdocs, et cetera. So I went and interviewed and I got the position with the Ontario government. You've said there's a lot of common ground between research scientists and public servants. What do you mean by that? People ask me about this. You know, you've trained for so many years as a scientist, and now you're, you're in the public service. And there is a lot in common. In research, 90% or more of what you do fails. And the same is in policy development. Most of the work that you do as a civil servant is actually failure policies don't move forward. They get stuck somewhere along the process. And it's the same in science. But in both cases, when you do succeed, they can have profound impacts on people's lives. And it's the same in science and it's the same in public policy. And I think those aspects of it, that perseverance, that determination that's needed, and then the positive impacts that you could have on communities are something that they share. Thank you for that insight. Really hadn't made that connection on how difficult it is to be in the public sector on so many levels. We hope you're enjoying today's episode and would like to remind our listeners that the NGB Ideas podcast is part of Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit that's taking place in Hamilton this October. For details, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. Your first position within the Ministry of Economic Development was Senior Sector Advisor in Life Sciences. What exactly does a Senior Advisor in Life Sciences within the Ontario government do? Essentially, I was a sector expert. When the Deputy Minister's Office or the Assistant Deputy Minister or the Minister is looking for advice about potential investments, answering questions on a particular topic within Life Sciences, if they're being approached by companies about regulations, oftentimes they would come to a sector expert that understands the industry and can bring that expertise in answering questions. Oftentimes with me, it was around investments. Companies that were looking to invest in Ontario in a particular area, whether it's a particular technology or research or whatever it may be, oftentimes the decision makers may not have the insights into 
you know, what does it mean to run clinical trials out of Ontario? What does it mean to have a sterile bottling facility or uh, a formulation center or whatever it may be? Being able to explain that to them in lay terms so that they can understand, yes, this is what this investment, this potential investment would mean in terms of the technology that's coming to Ontario, the types of jobs that would be involved, etc. So I would really advise government around life sciences. The current government has made significant strides in supporting the life sciences sector in Ontario, but I think there is general agreement within our sector that much more needs to be done. Premier Ford, I hope you're listening. When you got into government, did anything surprise you? Was the, was the job kind of what you expected? The first thing that surprised me, remember when I told you that the stereotype of the cushy government job? Well, it really was. There was a reason for that. Like nothing was happening. I joined during a writ period. So for those of you that don't know what a writ period is, right before an election, essentially the government grinds to a halt because no big decisions can be made while the electoral process is underway. I thought, okay, I knew things might be a little slower than in the private sector, but I mean, there was nothing happening for like the first week or so that I was on the job. And then once the new government got in, whoa, did I have a rude awakening? Things moved a mile a minute after that. And it was quite busy. I really enjoyed my time there. That was a bit of a surprise to me was those ebbs and flows of the politics and the influence that it actually has on public service as well. So after three years, you became the team leader of the ICT and Life Sciences Unit for just over a year. And ICT stands for Information and Communications Technology. And in my mind, perhaps unfairly, lumping ICT and Life Sciences together illustrates a fundamental lack of understanding within the government. Am I off base in saying that? You're not off base at all. And this was the thing is at the time I was within the government, I was working in a division called the Industry Division. And all of the sectors were sort of represented in the industry division. So the autos had its own big unit, right? Kind of separate and apart from everything else. But then other sectors like aerospace had a small unit and financial sector and manufacturing was treated separately. And I covered ICT and life sciences. And to be honest, ICT was the majority of the work. Life sciences was really an afterthought. And I think in big part, our industry has to bear some responsibility for that as well. Because when I looked at all of these other sectors, they were more mature from the standpoint of their representative organizations and industry associations. Remember, I told you that a sector advisor advises government. And one of the ways we do that is writing briefing notes. And so we write briefing notes with the advice and then the background of the sector, the employment stats, the economic footprint, et cetera. And in all sectors, essentially, the associations would provide that data in different reports and different forms so that the sector advisor doesn't have to look far to find it. But in life sciences, it was very different and very unique because the pharma folks had a separate association. The medtech folks had a separate association and the biotechs had a few different organizations. And so you'd have to piece together all the information and create that story as a sector advisor. That was one of the things that I observed when I was within government. And that's why when I had the opportunity to join LSO, I thought, here's an opportunity having seen from the government perspective how this industry is interacting with government versus other sectors. And I thought, maybe it's an opportunity for me to add that value for our sector and our industry and that voice with government. 
And I'm trying to keep in mind that this was in 2010 and the life sciences sector was obviously, as you say, not at the top of the priority list in Queen's Park. I would guess because of that and the position you were in, it must have been a frustrating time for you. Yeah, I would say it's a bit frustrating. We had some great initiatives that were underway through Open for Business, for example. We were working on a life sciences strategy way back then as well, too. That was the last project that I worked on with the government. And unfortunately, that never saw the light of day until many, many, many years later. It was frustrating from that perspective. Yes, I wanted things to move quicker than they were, for sure. But it also was an opportunity, right? Like, I mean, I did enjoy my time at government because you get to work with some amazing people from very different backgrounds. And that's a really cool thing about working within government. It's constantly changing landscape, so it's challenging. They certainly were investing in me talent-wise, giving me management training, etc., I think I was being groomed for management and leadership roles within the Ontario government. So there was a lot of really positive things I would say about my time in government. I think life sciences was underrepresented and wasn't on the radar. That's one of the reasons why I left is that I thought taking on a leadership role with LSO, first of all, from a career standpoint, it was something that I always wanted to do was take a leadership role. And this would allow me to do that. But again, I thought I could add value to our sector and our industry in terms of creating that voice with government. So that was in October 2011 when you joined LSO as executive director. How did that move actually come about? I really saw the the ad posting and I was familiar with LSO. I had met with some of their board members in my role as a sector advisor or as team lead within the life sciences group. I applied for the job and they had a committee that was interviewing and going through the recruitment process. And I met with the board members that were on that group and I remember going through the whole interview process and uh, them asking me questions. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to get the job offer and joined LSO and, you know, the rest is history. So what were your responsibilities as executive director? Yeah, so it was a really interesting time for LSO because essentially the way the organization was run up until that point was off of volunteers. So I was the first and only full-time employee to the organization when I was hired. So I was an army of one, Jim, <laughs> joining LSO. But, you know, we had a lot of great supports in place. We had an association management firm called First Stage Enterprise run by Doug Rosser and Sue Monroe and Brian Craig, who is now my director of operations, was working for them. And so I had that support from the perspective of running events and answering phones and managing finance and things like that were in place with the organization. For me, I was able to come in and really drive strategy forward, just bring a consistency to everything that we did and find efficiencies. We had a very, very small budget when I joined at LSO. And so you know, over the years, we've managed to grow our membership, grow our revenues, grow our staff and become essentially an independent organization that is high performing. So after two and a half years as ED, in April 2014, you became president and CEO. Was the climb up that ladder preordained or is there a backstory there you can share? I don't think it was preordained, Jim. I think it was a recognition from the board that we had evolved as an organization. And when Paul Lucas joined as our chair, I remember the first thing he asked me is, Jason, what's your vision for LSO? 
And I told them, you know, I want to be an independent organization. So, I mean, we had the association management firm. They did a great job, but I wanted to bring all of that in-house. I wanted to be independent and autonomous. I wanted us to sort of run our own show and I wanted our own employees. I wanted to build a staff and a team that was committed to the organization and committed to our members and our sector. And I wanted to grow our revenue base so that we could do more under the banner of LSO. I think the uh, recognition from the board of that promotion was essentially the evolution of that process. We weren't quite there yet, but they knew we were on our way. I think it was their way of showing their support for me and my vision and our collective vision for the organization. I'd like to do a deeper dive into LSO, but before we go there, I'd, I'd be interested to know what your parents and family's response was when you came home and said, hey, guess what? You know, family is a wonderful gym at keeping you grounded. And I remember my family members called me El Presidente for about a month after, after I got the promotion, just to make sure it didn't go to my head. Hey, El Presidente, take the garbage out. That's pretty much about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're, we're from similar families. For those listeners who may not be familiar with LSO, what is the organization about? Who is LSO? We're a fully member-funded, not-for-profit industry association. And I say those words very carefully. So fully member-funded means we're not a government organization. Usually when people see Ontario in the name, they think that we're a government agency or affiliated with government. That's not the case. So we don't have any revenues from government at any level. We're supported through the members that we represent. Now, I said we're an industry association. But we're a little different than most industry associations in that we don't just represent companies. I mean, we do have companies big and small, but we also have student members, academic institutes, service providers, consulting firms, law firms and accounting firms, as you know, any service providers that operate in, in life sciences, research institutes. It really is the whole ecosystem and community of life sciences that are our members and that we represent. And in terms of what we do as an organization, we really focus on three main areas. Number one is advocacy. So we want to be a strong voice with government around policies that support our industry. And this is right from basic research to commercialization and procurement of technologies. So we advocate for policies. The second thing is we want to serve as a hub of connectivity for the community. We like to bring people together. We like to make connections so that if you're having a challenge as a life sciences company or as a stakeholder in life sciences, and you're looking to connect with someone that can help you, if we don't have the answer, we probably know somebody that does. So we can make those connections, bring people together. We love running networking and education events as well as part of that community that we've built. And then the third thing is we feel it's important not just to advocate for government, to help us grow our sector, but we need to be part of that solution process and help build our sector. So we have a number of programs, a scholarship program, mentorship programs, business support programs for companies, all to support the growth and advancement of our sector. And a lot of work that we've been doing recently in that space has been around what we call idea, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. And I think life sciences has real opportunity to be industry leaders amongst other sectors and being champions for diversity and inclusion. Thanks for that overview. I appreciate it. Cards on the table. I am a member of Life Sciences Ontario and anyone in the sector who's not a member, I would strongly encourage them to look into becoming a member. 
You've said that one of your challenges that you faced early in your post-academic career was being thrown into a supervisory role without any experience. Could you shed some light on that? This is something that happens so often, I think, you know, particularly in the sciences where scientists pursue graduate degrees, masters and PhDs, and oftentimes they're put into supervisory roles right out of school. And they're well-trained in science, but oftentimes they're not well-trained in other areas, particularly in supervisory or managerial areas. And they're just thought they'll figure that out as they go. And, and yeah, I had some bumpy times early in my career as I was thrown into those supervisory roles and had to learn what it means to be responsible for others and to empower people to be successful, give them the tools and environment in which to be successful. And it's not about being the boss, right? If anything, being a leader is, I think, being more of a servant than being served. 100%. That's a lesson that I think was a hard learned lesson early in my career. I'm fortunate that I had people around me, people that were working with me that understood the follies of, of youth and helped me gain that knowledge and experience I needed to do better. You've had a few mentors in your career who have played an important role in making you the leader you are. And I understand Paul Lucas, CEO of GSK Canada, was one of them. Yeah, Paul was a huge influence on me from a leadership perspective for a couple of reasons. You know, it's very popular these days to talk about authentic leadership. And Paul was an authentic leader long before that term even existed. The first time I met with Paul, we had coffee and chatted about LSO and him coming on board as the chair. He was really feeling me out to see if I was somebody that he could work with and, and he felt that we could. And so the next time we met, he invited me to his home. And I remember driving into his neighborhood, which is a lovely neighborhood, by the way, <laughs> I was a little intimidated as I'm driving into this beautiful neighborhood in Oakville on the lake. And I was a little bit early because I did not want to be late. And I stopped the car and I'm thinking back even to the times when I was in government and we once took the deputy minister to meet with Paul. And this was a big deal, right? Meeting with Paul Lucas was a big deal. And here I was going to his home. And so I'm sitting there parked in his neighborhood just down the street waiting for the right time to ring the doorbell sort of thing, bundle of nerves, and my phone rings and it's Paul. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe he's busy. Maybe he's got to cancel or or whatever. And I answer the phone and I said, hello. And, and he says, Jason, it's Paul. And I said, hi, Paul, is uh, everything okay? And he says, yeah, it's just making myself a ham and cheese sandwich. I wanted to know if you wanted one. Just as down to earth as you could ever imagine. But in addition to being that authentic leader, Paul had a, an ability to just bring perspective and focus to whatever conversation we were having. You know, whenever we would be talking about complex issues and challenges, he just had a way to bring it back to what are our strategic priorities? What's the one thing that we need to do and focus on? And it just it was a way of simplifying things and removing the noise. And from a leadership perspective, that really empowered me to have clarity in terms of what I needed to do, but then to be able to do that with others that might be overwhelmed with project or, you know, for running an event and just say, okay, well, let's get rid of the noise. What do we need to focus on now? And just bringing that clarity is so important as a leader. And Paul did that in the most amazing way. I wonder if you think being a leader is something you're born with, or is it something people grow into? I think it's a little bit of both, and I'm not just hedging my bets on this. Jim, I honestly believe this, because there's aspects of leadership that I think 
can be a natural talent. And then you have to fill the gaps by learning, right? So nobody has it all. Let me say that, okay? I don't think that there's anybody that is just a natural born leader has all the skills to be an effective leader. That would be very rare, I would say. But I think many people have natural abilities, but then it's how do they match those natural abilities with their learned abilities to become effective leaders? So I'll give you an example. I think for a scientist, I was a fairly strong communicator. I always had the gift of the gab, as my parents used to say. So I could carry conversations and present through oral communication fairly effectively. And I had that talent. And obviously, it's something that you have to continue to practice and hone over time. But then I talked about supervisory leadership, project management. Those were things I had to learn and work on and study. I think it's a combination of both. You have to have some natural aptitudes in certain areas, but a lot of it you need to learn and it's hard work and you have to put the time and effort towards it. I'm going to switch gears here. And uh, this is a bit of an open-ended question, but what impact do you think the COVID pandemic had on Ontario's life sciences sector? COVID-19 had a huge impact on everyone and on many businesses in a negative way. We saw so many small businesses suffer during COVID-19. And you know, life sciences wasn't completely immune to that. I think a lot of people may think that it was a boon for life sciences, but it was a struggle for many. Like you think about the number of surgeries and diagnostics that got delayed. Well, you know, all of the companies that are providing the equipment and the solutions and services to those were affected by that as well. I think the one positive thing for the sector writ large is that it certainly brought focus and clarity around the importance of this industry and the sector and the importance of continued investment and vigilance. It's not a sector that we can ignore. Like, I mean, we, we don't want to be caught unprepared next time. We want to make sure that we have capacity, not just in our health systems, but in our manufacturing uh, capabilities as well. And so this requires strategy. It requires continued investment. So you know, it took the worst pandemic in a hundred years to sort of bring that importance. But I'm really proud of our industry and the way that we reacted to the pandemic and the solutions that we brought. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that life sciences saved the world from COVID-19. And that's huge. It's huge. And when you think about the economies that were shut down across the board because of COVID-19, and it's the solutions and innovations not just vaccines, but diagnostics and PPE and right through, you know, the entire uh, life sciences sector. It was our innovations that really allowed us to open back up and, and get back to life again and open up economy. It had a huge impact. And so I've been saying for a while now, you know, there is no economic security without health security and life sciences has to be a strategic imperative for all governments, I think. What's the biggest challenge you faced as a CEO of Life Sciences Ontario, and, and what did you learn from that challenge? It was taking risks, I think. I'm, I'm generally risk-averse. <laughs> I mean, I, I run my organization that way. I run my household that way. But when you're dealing with a small organization that is looking to evolve and grow, you need to take some strategic risks. And again, this is something that Paul Lucas taught me. You have to take measured risks, but they're risks nonetheless, and that puts me out of my comfort zone. And that's somebody that's very risk adverse. There was a time a few years back before the pandemic, probably about five or six years back, where LSO was sort of at a tipping point where we had to decide what we were going to do as an organization. We had to essentially grow or perish, I think. 
And that was a really tough moment, I think, for us to come to is that if we were going to continue as an organization, we needed to involve and that required making some strategic investments. And with those investments comes risk, because if those investments don't show that return, we're not going to be able to continue to operate. That was a real challenge for me, but it was a real learning opportunity as well as a leader. I'm wondering what your biggest win has been as CEO and what did that teach you? I think the biggest win for our organization has been the announcement of a life sciences strategy, both federally and provincially. Since day one of me coming to LSO, it was something that I've said that we need, and it was something that I've been a passionate advocate about. And I think it, the fact that we have those strategies in place now, it's an acknowledgement of the work that we've done over the last decade and more. It's the determination, it's the perseverance, it's the consistency of messaging, it's the number of partners and stakeholders that have also taken up their voices with that message and that community that we've built. So I would say that that's great success. And you mentioned the board member that said, yeah, we're a bit like the dog that caught the bus. Uh, now what? <laughs> and still lots of work to be done because strategies, they're no good until they're implemented. And we still have a lot of implementation to do. Uh, looking back on your journey, is there a time when you clearly saw the way forward or is, is the threat of your path something that dawned on you only in hindsight? I think my career journey has been very nonlinear. Let me put it that way. I mean, I never would have predicted leaving science to go into government and then leaving government to go into, you know, an industry association and not for profit. But but I really love what I do. And I, for me, it seems in retrospect, in hindsight, it's a natural progression in terms of the skills that I developed and the experiences that I've gained, but certainly wasn't something that I foresaw or planned. This next question is for listeners of our podcast who may just be starting a career in, in life sciences and just touched on it. Yeah, you've worked in the private sector, you've worked in the public sector, and now in the not-for-profit sector. And I learned from our recent interview with Brigitte Nolay, CEO of Roche Canada Pharma, that is a tri-sector leader. And I was not familiar with that term until she explained it. Uh, what has your experience taught you about what's important personally and professionally? There's a couple really good pieces of advice that I've been given over my career. The first one is know yourself and be really self-aware. The more you can be self-aware in terms of what makes you happy and what the environment is and what you need to be successful, the better you're going to be positioned in order to be successful. So you have to know yourself and know your personality, know the environment that you need to succeed in. So that's really important. It's a hard thing to do. And I think particularly for young people is, is having that self-awareness, understanding how others perceive you, as well as knowing yourself and what's going to make you happy. And then associated closely with that, the second piece of, of advice I was given early in my career, and at the time, I was a little ticked off at the person that said it to me because he was a, a senior person in an organization I was working for. They said, you know, Jason, you can't chase money. You have to pursue what's going to make you happy and the money will come. And I remember at the time being a, a young person that started my career and we were just buying a house at the time and taking on a mortgage and starting a family. I thought, hell, that's easy for you to say, <laughs> you know, you're a senior executive, you're making gobs of money. You've never been in my position. Yeah. But you know, throughout my career, all of the changes that I have made, I took pay cuts during those transitions. So when I left the research community to join government. When I left government to join LSO, I actually took a pay cut. They weren't big pay cuts, but they were still less money than what I was making before. And the reason 
I made those decisions were because there were things that I wanted to do and, and pursue for my own happiness and personal contentment. And I think in hindsight, I probably ended up in a better place financially because I've been successful in pursuing what makes me happy. The advice that I was given, even though I was a little ticked off at the time, probably stuck in my head. And it was something that I followed. And I've seen throughout my career, many people not follow it and regret it and then have to backtrack and find that happiness and do that self-examination again of what is going to make me happy and gain that self-awareness. So the more you can do that, I would say early in your career, the better you're going to end up in the long run, even if it means a little less money at the front end, which is the hardest time to do it because you're all struggling and, and trying to start a life and pay mortgages and pay your car payments and all of those things. But focus on happiness and the success will follow. What three things are you most proud of professionally, personally? What comes to mind? I think the first is my kids. I have three amazing kids. So I have two girls and a boy, girl, boy, girl, 15, 13, and 11. They're smart, they're funny, they're generous, they're kind. Don't tell them I said this. I'll never live it down. But, you know, I'm really proud of all three of them. I think they're just awesome human beings. And I'm not saying that just because I'm their parents. But, you know, I always think of it, if I met them as strangers and I was their age, would they be people that I would be friends with? And I probably would be with each and every one of them. I'm most proud of them from a personal perspective. From a professional perspective, I'm really proud of what we've accomplished at LSO and the community that we've built, the people that we work with that share our passion and commitment to this sector to help people. It's not just in the in the health space, right? It's it's about the jobs that are created and the careers that are built. It really is a community that we've built. And I'm really proud to just be a part of that and the confidence and responsibility that our members have stowed upon me to represent them to a certain degree. It's something that I, I'm very proud of and feel privileged uh, to be part of. What's the next great big idea on your horizon? We've made a lot of strides in life sciences, but I think there's more to be done. And ultimately, I would like to see Ontario be competing with jurisdictions like Massachusetts in, in terms of being world leaders in, in life sciences. And we're close. We're really, really close. We, we need some additional commitments. I know in Massachusetts, you know, when they developed their strategy, they created a dedicated agency called the Massachusetts Life Sciences Center. I think the next big idea would be to have something similar in Ontario, completely committed to life sciences and its success, and hopefully take this strategy to the next level. Thank you for that. And thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure getting to know you better, and we're lucky to have you on the team of Life Sciences in Ontario. I'm excited by what's coming down the pipe. Thanks, Jim. Much appreciated. That was Jason Field, President and CEO of Life Sciences Ontario. If you'd like to learn more about LSO, check out lifesciencesontario.ca, and you can find them on social at LifesciencesON. The NGB Ideas podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit that's taking place this October in Hamilton. For details, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. We're very pleased Tisha Persaud researched and edited this week's episode, and we're very thankful for the great job she does. If you're interested in following me on social media, you can find me at Lab Occupier, and you can email me at jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D, dot com. On a final note, we hope you like what we're doing and would appreciate you promoting us online with the hashtag NGBIdeas. Thanks for listening.